Our scripture reading for this morning is from Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughtered the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down In good grazing land and on rich pasture, they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Last Sunday, I preached a message on perhaps the hardest passage in all of Scripture to preach, where Jesus said that he expects his disciples to renounce all they have and even to hate father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. And if you are not willing to do that, Christ says, Whoever does not even hate his own life, does not bear his own cross and come after him, you cannot be his disciple. You would think that after Christ preached that message to the crowds, openly and publicly, you'd think that it would have been the last message that he would have ever preached. That no one would come back. They would say, if that's the cost, I'm out. I'm going to go find some preacher that's easier to listen to. But in fact, quite the opposite 
happened. So as you see the cost of discipleship and the fact that Jesus expects you and I to put him first in our lives, and that if there's a competing interest, we are to always forsake anything else and follow after Christ. And if that's what Jesus says, then chapter 15 describes the result. And let me read the very last verse of chapter 14 before we go to chapter 15. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to find the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 15 today. But, but listen to this. This is 14 verses 35. Jesus ends this incredibly difficult passage with this phrase. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you have a heart that is open to listening to what God has to say to you, pay special and careful attention to Jesus' teaching on discipleship. Know the cost of following Jesus and be ready to pay it as you follow after him. And now look at verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They were all drawing near to hear him. In other words, they had ears to hear. They heard what he said, they understood what he said, and they were hungry to hear more. I long to be the kind of person that always hears what God has for me. And I long to see this happen at our church and in our community. I want to see people flock to Jesus Christ, knowing what it costs and willing to pay whatever it costs because Christ is worth it and more precious than anything in the world. I long to see the kingdom of God established in Holly, and I believe that it's our calling and our mission to work towards that until Jesus returns. And I believe the best way for us to do that is just like Jesus to preach with boldness the message of the kingdom. That Jesus is returning. The day of the Lord is at hand and we need to be ready. That forgiveness of sins is offered through Jesus Christ as we repent and believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And maybe... When I say that, I believe that we build the kingdom as we preach the message that Jesus preached. Maybe preach isn't the best word, because I think preaching is so important. That's why why it takes up half of the service every time we, we have services together as a church. But I also want to emphasize that those of you who don't preach, who would never preach, you also have a responsibility to spread the message of the kingdom through actions and through words, and especially through your own example and life as you follow after Christ, showing that Jesus is more precious than anything else. He is more precious than health, even as you pray for healing. 
He is more precious than financial security. He's more precious than having a picture-perfect family. He is more precious than anything. And whatever he leads you through, he is worth following because he is greater. My prayer is that people would flock to Jesus because we show how valuable he is in our lives on a regular basis. And my prayer for this sermon is that we would see Jesus in a fresh way, and we would be excited and thankful for the kind of God that he is. And we would leave here reflecting what Jesus is like because we've been here together worshiping him and we've seen what he's like from his word. My prayer is that you and I would love Christ more as we look at this text together, that we would be like those tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear him, and that that would be obvious to everyone who knows us. We are in love with Jesus. Look with me at the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15 and see what he's like with me. Verse 1, as we've already seen, says, Now as the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We heard Lauren read from the book of Ezekiel just a moment ago. And and part of why is I think it's so important to understand that the God that we see in the person of Jesus Christ is the same God who spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament. Ezekiel shows that God has always wanted sinners to repent. He shows the heart of God to seek the lost. And in Jesus' day, you find the exact same setting that Ezekiel was addressing. Namely, God says to Ezekiel that those who were entrusted with shepherding the people, the priests and the Levites, they had not faithfully shepherded the people. In other words, they had not taught them what the law said. They had not helped them obey it. They had not led them in repentance for sin. Instead, they had actually profited off of religion. They had enjoyed the sacrifices because they were able to eat from them. And they had been enriched 
off of the religious rituals and ceremonies of Judaism, but they had failed to teach the law. And so it was a hypocritical surface-level religion. And God condemns the religious leaders in Ezekiel's day. And he basically fires them. He said, you're not doing your job, so I will do your job for you. And God declares that he is the shepherd who will go after the sheep. He will rescue the lame. He will strengthen the weak. But he will call the shepherds to account because they did not do what they were supposed to do. And this is what you see Jesus doing exactly. Jesus is the one who is going after the weak. He is going after the lame. You've seen him literally heal people in the book of Luke. And you have seen sinners realizing their own sin, coming to Christ and experiencing the forgiveness of God as Jesus forgives their sins. And what is he doing? He's strengthening the weak. He's gathering the sheep. He is rescuing the lost. This is what God does, and this is what Jesus is doing. And so when we come to this chapter, we see those who should have been shepherds of Israel, instead of recognizing what Jesus was doing in healing people and in forgiving sins, they condemn him for spending time with lost sheep. And in fact, the, the word sinner here is a word that, that I think is worth our time just pausing and, and talking about for just a minute. Because it's actually very similar in, in our culture. It's not a word that we use in any seriousness outside of a religious context. If, if we talk about sin, maybe we connect it with chocolate or something like that. And this chocolate is so delicious, it's sinful. It's an indulgence. It's, it's a kind of, this is so good. We talk about it that way. But if you seriously called someone a sinner, they would be deeply insulted. In fact, not only is that true in our day, in Greco-Roman culture, this word was so insulting that it was never used in secular Greek except in one instance. You could find it on inscriptions of tombstones and on graves, warning people that you should not desecrate the grave or they would call someone who did a sinner. They would have curses on people that violated ancient graves. That's the only case in secular Greek where it was used because it was so deeply insulting. It was equivalent of calling someone deficient in a way that we would never want to acknowledge. We would never want to, to openly admit Maybe one of the closest ways we could get to it today is, and, and I almost feel bad even saying this, but, but the word retarded is kind of like what we would say. When that word is used inappropriately as an insult, it's saying to someone, there's something broken in you. You don't have the normal mental capacity that someone else has that we would typically expect. That's the best analogy that we can get to that. So secular Greeks hated the word and wouldn't even use it. And so when the Pharisees were saying, this man eats with sinners... They're saying something deeply insulting about Jesus and the people that he was rescuing and healing and saving. But in biblical Greek, it's an enormously common word. And it does two things. This word clearly shows what happens when we fail to obey 
God's commands. We become deficient. We become broken. We miss the mark. We are not what he created us to be. The sins that we commit are deeply damaging. So a sinner is someone who has missed the mark of what God had intended for him to be. And he is broken and damaged as a result of that sin. So you find in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, many times the psalmist talks about his own sins and acknowledges his own brokenness. But you also see it for anyone who has violated the law. And when you come to the New Testament, the Pharisees believe that they have kept the law. So they would not include themselves in this. They would not admit their own sin They would say they were faithful, and if they messed up at all, they would make a sacrifice, and they would count themselves righteous because of what they had done. But when Jesus came, he was willing to eat with people that they called sinners. And Jesus never denies it. He never denies it. In fact, if you remember earlier in Luke, when he meets with that woman... He's at the house of a Pharisee, and this woman comes in and anoints his feet with oil and with her tears and wipes them with her hair. Jesus says of that woman, her sins, which are many. He acknowledges that she is sinful. And the Bible describes, it's not just people that you could look at and know by reputation, but the Bible says all of us have sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The book of James teaches that the source of sin is actually in your heart. You can't say that sin happens because of your environment. You can't blame it on other people. You can't say that you didn't have what you needed, so you were forced into it. James says that sin comes because you desire wrong things. And he adds that if you break even one law... You're guilty of all. The Bible describes all of us as being born slaves to sin. The problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't recognize it. Tim Keller, one of the pastors that I, that I really love reading, he says this, he says, sin is not just doing bad things. Pharisees thought they were good because they didn't do bad things. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's turning good things into ultimate things. It's turning good things into ultimate things. See, the Pharisees, they took the law of God, which is a good thing, and they believed that they could earn God's favor through keeping it, which is not true. And so they rejected anyone that they deemed had failed. But when you do that, Keller continues, he says, when you turn good things into ultimate things, it ruins your soul, it destroys community, and it dishonors God. Sin is not just being a thief or a liar or looking at pornography or getting drunk. Religious people that might avoid all those things, religious people are sinners when they try to be good without God. Next week, we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. And really, that's a terrible title for it because both sons in that story are far from the father. But one of them, the older brother, looks like a good person. But he's separated from his father's love, just like the son who leaves. And and we'll talk more about that. For today, here's what I want us to, to, to think about. 
the reality is that good people that pursue God can be just as far from him as the sinners that everyone else recognizes are sinners. And I want to remind you, since we talked a little bit about David as we talked about the Bible Project and what we're doing in our children's church, I want to remind you how this happened in the life of David. So think for a moment about David. And I know we put him on a little bit of a pedestal because he killed Goliath and he's described as a man after God's own heart and God clearly blesses him and gives him awesome promises. But think for just a second about the environment that David grew up in. If you ever read the book of Judges, it is horrific. It's terribly violent. The tagline is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, meaning they did not listen to what the law of God said. They did what they thought was right, and often what they thought was right was horribly wrong. That's the national culture that King David grew up in. And when David had received some success as king, after Saul had died, after he's won some victory, he wants to move the capital to Jerusalem. And as he does that, he wants to bring the Ark of God to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark is this special chest that it contains the Ten Commandments. It reminds Israel of the covenant they made with God so that they are God's people. God is their God. And most importantly, you can think of it as a sort of royal throne or or as a litter for the presence of God. Now, it didn't literally carry the presence of God. God was so clear about that. But when you read through the Psalms about how he is enthroned on the cherubim, well, the cherubim are those two angels that are on top of that box. So as they carried this box around, it symbolized the presence of God. And all Israel would remember, God is with us because we are God's covenant people. He rescued us from Egypt. We have agreed to keep his laws and to abide by this covenant. And so God is with us. And so they would hope in the presence of God, especially as they thought about the Ark of the Covenant. It was a visual reminder of God's presence. It was a central part of their worship. And David wants to bring it to Jerusalem because he wants to lead all of the people in faithfulness to the covenant, in worship to God. And when he does that, he's ignorant of how God wanted the ark to be moved. And the reason he's ignorant is because he grew up during the time of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's not a time when people understand and know the law well. And even though David has a heart that follows after God, he's ignorant of how to handle the sacred things of God. And in this instance, he does not try to find out. He doesn't even know what he doesn't know. In order to bring the ark into Jerusalem, he thinks, how can I best honor God? And how can we do this in a way that leads all of Israel united in worship to the Most High? And so what he does is he commissions a new cart to be built. And they put the Ark of the Covenant, all covered in gold, angels on top, on this cart, and they have it drawn by a team of oxen. And as the oxen bring the cart to Jerusalem, the people are praising God, and they are so enthusiastic and so happy. They're trusting in the presence of God to bless them as a people, They're thankful that they have a king that wants to follow God rightly. And they are so excited until one of the oxen stumbles. And it looks like the 
Ark of the Covenant is going to fall off the cart. And so Uzzah, one of the men who was in the procession, put his hand on the Ark to steady it, and God struck him dead. And David is furious, and and furious and afraid at the same time. He feels like he was trying to please God. His heart was right. And so he wants to know why God broke out in wrath and killed someone who was only trying to protect something sacred. So David goes through a period of time where he says, well, I'm not going to bring the ark to Jerusalem then. He doesn't trust God. God has hurt him in a way. And he's afraid. And he doesn't believe that God will help them anymore. And so the ark goes and lives at this man's house, and God begins to bless this man's house enormously. And it's obvious to everyone around. And as God blesses this man who, who has the ark of the covenant in his house, David starts to think about what went wrong. Why is it that I was trying to do what was right and this terrible thing happened? He's the king. He's responsible. It was his job to be faithful to the law. And as he tried to be faithful in ignorance, he broke it and judgment poured out. And he wrestles with that. And so he begins to learn what God said about how the ark was to be moved. You weren't supposed to put it on a cart. It was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. It's like a royal litter that that is moved around, honored, because the person there is so valuable that you put them on your back. And he understands that he sinned in ignorance as the king. And so he leads a time of national repentance. And then they obey the law. And they do bring the ark to Jerusalem. And they find tremendous blessing as a people. The the point that I want to make with that story is that you can try to do what's right and fail and experience the judgment of God because you broke the law. It's possible for good people to be sinners. And we don't like to think about that. And we don't like to think that God punishes sin, even if your intention was good. But it's true. And the Pharisees thought that their hearts were clean and pure and they were faithful to the law, but they were wrong. And Jesus corrects their hearts by showing them He is the shepherd that goes after stray sheep. They are in danger of being the false shepherds judged by God. And the truth is, you can see that this is true, especially because the joy that comes here is a joy as sinners repent. Look again, twice it says this. Verse 7, Jesus says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then again in verse 10, he says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repentance is always a turning away from sin. As Jesus ate both with Pharisees and with immoral people that were clearly breaking the law. His goal was always to bring them to repentance, and he did it by exposing their sin and leading them to God's grace. Think of the woman at the well, John chapter 4. What does she say? 
after Christ has offered her living water and they have this conversation and she tries to deflect and, and Jesus says, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You've had five and the guy you're living with now is not your husband either. Jesus doesn't say, look, it's fine. I understand you were desperate. He shows that she was wrong. And in revealing her sin, she recognizes that she needs to trust the Savior for forgiveness. And when she goes and she tells the town that this prophet is here, he says, come here a man who told me everything I ever did. See, Christ spent time with sinners, but he always called them to repentance and he always exercised the mercy and the grace of God in bringing healing and forgiveness. But he told them, forsake your sin. Leave it. Don't be the same person you were. Jesus leads the way in bringing sinners back to God. They had, in this context, especially heard his clear and bold teaching that you are to count the cost before you follow Christ, that you are to bear the cross after him, that Jesus matters more than your family. And when they heard that, they came in droves and were saved. They understood that they were dead apart from Christ, and so he was worth everything. You see that in people like Zacchaeus, who gave away the gold that had been his God. You see it in the tears of the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. Leon Morris, one of the commentators I was reading as I was preparing for this, said Jesus has just made an uncompromising demand for wholeheartedness as he showed what following him meant, and he finished with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Luke's very next words tell us that these sinners came near to hear him. They believed him. Whatever the case with the Pharisees, and they're like, these sinners had been challenged. They knew what discipleship meant. They were called on to hear, and they heard. Jesus is not compromising when he eats with sinners The sinners are leaving their sin. And here is good news. Jesus not only ate with sinners, he also ate with Pharisees. In other words, it doesn't matter what your type of sin is, he's willing to meet with you and call you out of it. Why is that good news? Because he means he loves self-righteous people. He loves self-righteous people like I grew up to be. I, I was a good kid in church. And I thought that I was fine because I always did all these things. And then one day... Jesus opened my eyes to my sin and I realized that even though I was a good kid in church and everybody thought I was a perfect little kid, I was a sinner. And I needed the blood of Jesus to cleanse me of my sin. Jesus saved Paul, who was a smug Pharisee, who was so sure of himself that he killed people in the name of God. And he still saves smug religious people today. And I am so thankful that he does. That leads to the joy of the Savior. Jesus calls you and I to repent. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, and what your sin is. As you forsake your sin and trust the Savior, you find forgiveness. And there is amazing joy in heaven over every sinner that repents. 
And think for just a moment about why that is the case. God is joyful because his mission is successful. He is saving people. The shepherd did find the sheep. The woman did find her coin. And Jesus faithfully saves sinners. Think of what Jesus said in John chapter 6. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He is a successful shepherd. He says, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, heaven is full of joy because the mission of God to save sinners is successful. And so for all of eternity, we will rejoice because of what God has done through Jesus. And you see in this text that the Father planned it, and the Father willed it, and the Son put it into action, and the Spirit is still working that out to this day. How does the Father do this? How does God seek the lost now? Well, through Jesus primarily. The Son of Man came into the world to seek and save that which is lost. You see his mission to seek people in his willingness to meet with anyone, anywhere, at any time to call them to repentance. He does it for Nicodemus the Pharisee. He does it for the woman at the well. He did it for anyone. Not only did he come to meet sinners, he came to die for them in their place. And this was planned before the foundation of the world, that the Son of Man would come and not only tell us what God is like, but he would rescue us from the sin that destroyed us, that would kill us. I said a couple of weeks ago, I read an article in the paper about bomb squads in Nigeria disarming suicide bombers. So Boko Haram has recruited teams of especially young women because their veils make it easier for them to hide bombs. And as they wander around, some cases, unfortunately, seeking the most number of people to kill, but in other cases, they're unwilling victims. And so it described one young woman... uh, carefully, with great fear, in tears, approaching a man saying, I have a bomb strapped to me. Please save my life. And there are teams of of brave men who go after these bombs with, with just a pair of scissors and a couple of small tools saving people's lives. That's that's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Our sin is going to destroy us and hurt the people around us. And Jesus comes and loves you so much, he didn't just disarm the bomb, he took it and allowed it to explode and he absorbed all of the consequences of our sin when he died for us on the cross. That was his mission. That's why Luke says he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. His purpose was to take the sin that would have killed you and to die in your place. That's how Jesus sought and saved the lost. He became a curse for you so that you would live. Not only did Jesus do that in history, and and praise God, he didn't stay dead. Scripture says death had no power over him. It could not hold him. 
So he rose in victory and he gives life to everyone who trusts in him. And so today, the Spirit is at work pointing us to Christ, calling lost sinners to faith in Jesus. And he does this as we preach and proclaim the gospel. He does it when we preach the gospel on Sunday mornings. In this context, he does it when you tell your friends and your neighbors and your family about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you, just a moment, if you're a believer this morning, if you'd say, I know that God has saved me, think for just a second about how God sought you and the people he used. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher who told you the gospel. Maybe it was a family member who shared the gospel with you. Maybe you were at VBS. Maybe it was a Wednesday night. For me, I remember I heard the gospel a number of times through faithful Sunday school teachers and through, through summer programs that I, I went and I heard and I did nothing. I responded to no one while I was at church. But then one day, by the grace of God, when I was eight years old, I went to a service and I heard this guy that God used to describe the gospel just one more time. And the Holy Spirit opened my heart and I realized that I needed to trust the blood of Jesus to cleanse me from my sin. His first name was Charlie. I don't even know his last name. But God sought me through a faithful servant who preached the word. You might be able to name the people that shared the gospel with you. And I would encourage you, if you can, think about that person for just a minute. God seeks sinners through People who spread the good news of Jesus. You know what that means? That means God can use you to reach other people. That if you have heard the gospel and believed in it and you are saved, God wants to use you to reach other people. And so as we talk about different opportunities to do that at the church, whether it's Wednesday night with Awana, whether it's Sunday morning with Kids Church, I would urge you to recognize you can be used of God to seek and save someone else. And it doesn't have to be a ministry at the church here. I would encourage you, be open to being used by God to reach your neighbors. Be open to being used by God to reach your kids, your family, your friends, your loved ones. Recognize you might be afraid and feel like people are just going to reject you and, and turn you down, and maybe they will. But you know what? It's not your job to save people. Jesus does that, and the Holy Spirit is the one who will work, and he wants to work through you. And I want to urge you today to be the kind of person that God uses to seek and save the lost. It only happens as we talk about repentance. It only happens as we talk about what Jesus did for us. So be the kind of person who recognizes how God saved you and tell other people. Recognize that God is still seeking and saving the lost. And if you're here this morning and you don't know if you are saved, if God has done this for you, I want to urge you to remember the precious verses that describe the hope that we have, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God may be seeking you right now. So confess your sin and experience the forgiveness that comes through faith in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we want to praise you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you sought us before we were lovely. That you loved us while we were still in our sin. 
And Father, I ask that you would build your church as we spread that good news. We praise you that you are the kind of God that seeks after lost sinners. And I ask that you would do this work again and again and again so that our praises multiply more and more. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. As I dismiss you this morning, I want to leave you with words of Paul from 1 Thessalonians. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. It's possible for you to live with Jesus today. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Go in peace.